What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Simon Herbert. Simon? Hello, Stuart. And how are you on this fine evening, stroke daytime? Uh, well, the weather is in the uh, 70s here in Los Angeles, so it's, it's pretty good for an Englishman. Indeed, indeed, indeed. So yes, that's uh, for, the, for, those, for those listening in uh, black and white, he's in America. Um, <laughs> so what film are we here to talk about? We are here to talk about a film called Savage Land. Okay, and what was your role on that movie? I am, is, is, that, is that role brackets S brackets? Uh, roles, yes. Um, I, I am a multi-hyphenate, but the multi-hyphenate is complicated by the fact that we have three multi-hyphenates. Uh, I, am, I am one of an infernal triumvirate, um, the axis of evil, uh, horror films uh, with uh, co-writer, producer, directors David Whalen mm. and Gidry. Uh, there are three of us that made Savage Land. So that so the three of you are the writer, the producer, and the director. That is correct. Yes, as as uh, strange as that sounds, that is actually the, the dynamic that we've worked on. And did, did so you so you allow editing was left to somebody else. Uh, editing, uh, soundtrack, uh, director of photography. We had a very small pool of collaborators, but we had um, some extra. Apart from Phil, David, and I, there were. Um, there's an original soundtrack uh, by Soviet Friends, which is a, a, a seminal ambient group uh, based in England. So it's nice to keep the Brit quota uh, up there. Uh, and then our photographer, uh, director of photography, was Turner Jumanville who was also an executive producer because it was him that basically supplied the equipment and worked with us uh, without uh, complaint for three and a half years making the movie. Then uh, just a, a last quick shout out to uh, Kent Verderico, who's our audio mixer, and our two editors, Matt Smith and Matt Eagleson. And other than that, everybody else has a bit part. That, that was the so give it so, so for those of us that don't know the movie, what's, what's Savage Land about? What's, give us a brief Sa synopsis. Savage Land is a docudrama uh, which is set on the uh, American-Mexican border in Arizona. It's set in the uh, fictional off-the-grid town of Sangre de Cristo, uh, which is a kind of um, 
you know, it, 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 it is off the grid. It, it, it's a town that's kind of disappeared from mainstream society but has lots of functioning people in it. And one night, something, something horrible passes through that town and all 57 of the inhabitants uh, die. And there is no... There are no bodies left. There are only blood trails that go off into the desert. And Savage Land is a film about what happened that night. Right. And um, <coughs> now, you're, you're, now I, I saw the movie, and I met you, for that, for that matter, at the New Orleans Horror Film Festival, where your film screened. And we had many bar drinks as well. Can I say that? Well, yeah, you can, yeah. I've, I've never claimed to be... Uh, <laughs> To be anything other than other than Stuart Wright on the podcast, so other details like that, you give you give it you're putting colour on me, I think. Well, 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 as you know, Stuart, when you're at a horror festival for three days, you need interregnums in order to uh, uh, kind of uh, energise yourself up for the next film. And luckily, we were in New Orleans, where the bars are plentiful and nearby, and gives us a, like a slight um, interruption between gore. Well, no, and I thought, to be honest with you, the organisers were very generous with their cooler of beer on ice that was there yes. for us to just dip into as and when we were thirsty. Yes, it was, it was, a, it was a really great um, uh, New Orleans Horror Film Festival, fantastic festival. Now, that was back in um, end of September, and that was, I guess, the start of the journey for this film, wasn't it? Sort of making its way out to the world via film festivals, of which, right this very minute, we're, we're hot on the trail of news where you played at the Nevermore Festival, is that right? Yes, the Nevermore uh, Festival um, at the uh, Carolina Theatre in Durham, North Carolina. And there was good news about your film at this festival, wasn't there? Less than 24 hours ago, we heard from Jim Carl, the um, committee chair and organiser of events, that we won the Best Feature. on, on the, the, the Jury Award for Best Feature, which was uh, wonderful. Fantastic news, fantastic news. So, have you got other festivals in the diary at the moment, or are you waiting on and, and, and writing to people at the moment in terms of it? Or, or indeed, have you got a release date up in mind? I, I am like a southern belle. I rely upon the kindness of strangers, and uh, we rely upon the kindness of film festivals at the moment. So, um, we are talking to distributors, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit later, but honestly... Sure. Um, uh, we are doing what every other indie filmmaker, whether horror or any other genre, does. We are uh, putting the horse through its paces through the festivals and seeing uh, who bites and who doesn't. And that's more than too many mixed metaphors. <laughs> but 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 it's uh, yeah. Well, it's got it, it, as far as you and I talking here now. It, it it created this situation, which is kind of weird, isn't it? To think that me in little old East London, you over in LA. Yeah, we meet at a festival, and here we are recording a podcast together. So um, let's talk, let's talk about the film. Um, okay. What you, know, you, you mentioned in in the in your sort of in your, in your list of people you were thanking and, and, and pointing out involved with it that the film took three years to make. Is that three years from the script finishing, or is that three years from pen to paper to post post production? Well, there you go, Stuart. Because the idea of the word or the phrase in inverted commas, script finishing go was on. not part of this. Um, really? Do you want to go into that process now or talk more generally about the movie? Because I can do either. Well, let, well let's, let, let's, 
Well, I guess it, you could wrap it round because I think I think the question is what inspired Savage Land. You mean you've given us a brief synopsis of what the film's about. What inspired it, and then well, then if there was no script, how were you constructing it as a movie? Okay, well, what inspired the script um, was um, naked need to make something. Uh, okay. And let, let me digress a second. So uh, Phil Guidry, David Whalen, and I were all graduates of the, inverted commas, uh, prestigious UCLA screenwriting program. Uh, okay. We all graduated in 2007. Uh, oh, Phil and David have respective careers uh, in the TV world and radio world, working on sports programs since then, um, and are also screenwriting tutors and submit their own uh, screenwriting uh, projects individually back into the, you know, the, the Hollywood uh, sausage machine, as, as do I. Okay. And after a period of time of going through that, and we all accept that, you know, as, as, as screenwriters in Los Angeles, you know you're going to send out a number of spec scripts every year, and some of them uh, uh, burn, some of them don't. And we found that we didn't want to be reliant on the kindness of strangers. We didn't want other people to say, yeah, that's great, but what else have you got? We, we, we came to that basic cognitive fulcrum that every indie filmmaker reaches, that kind of epiphany of a light bulb, which is, well, let's just make our own bloody movie, you know? Um, so we, we sat down together. Uh, uh, rather, originally, it was Phil and David that talked about wanting to do this, and um, the original conceit behind the idea was no more nor no more less than... Let us make a zombie movie, because that's a genre wherein we could probably make our small micro-budget movie. Yeah. Uh, and, and then my understanding of the process, that was Phil's suggestion, and then David's suggestion was quite brilliantly to uh, put it within the remit of uh, the American-Mexico uh, border uh, and the prejudice that goes on there at the moment. And, um, and, and then I was the last person, only after about three days, because it, it happened really quickly, so... The three of us sat down and, and went from that to really kind of fleshing out some kind of story, knowing that we had no money, uh, no resources, and then where would we go from that? So what we did over a period of um, about, I would say about six or eight weeks of development, yeah. is that we came up with a concept which um, intrigued all three of us, which to which was to, I mean, not to make too much of a direct reference to Romero, um, but we were informed by that. You know, Dawn of the Dead is a movie about consumerism as much as it is about zombies, and yeah. we felt we wanted some kind of social aspect to our movie to underpin it. Because, frankly, when you look at the budgets that horror movies have now, uh, you know, anybody can make a giant um, pair of fangs and go out and have a monster, and, and we felt that we wanted something to anchor whatever horror it is that we were talking about. And I can talk about horror a little bit more late, uh, later on, but okay. to, keep, to keep with your question about the process, what we felt was that um, if we can do something that resonates within a different context and is new within the horror genre, that, that would be what we wanted to do. Now, the thing within that was because we had limited resources, you know, we're not the... You know, we're not The Walking Dead and we don't have CGI and uh, the amazing latex artists that they have. We also needed to make something that was um, 
resonant with audiences in a different way. It maybe relied something more within the imagination. Okay. Um, so the, 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 the key part of, uh, if, if you like, the, the, the rocket fuel that propelled our project was that was the central conceit. I'm, I'm getting a bit vague, so let me pull back to a, uh, a central conceit. Uh, and, and that was that in that town that died that night, Sangre de Cristo, where 57 people uh, died, we were going to uh, intend to make a docudrama about uh, what happened that night. Uh, but we needed a handle, and the handle was, in terms of found footage, that these sole survivor of the massacre was uh, an illegal immigrant, Francisco Salazar, mm. who was found by the police as a survivor covered in 15 different types of blood groups. And within the context of, uh, uh, you know, uh, a racial police department in Arizona and the cauldron of debate that's going on about immigration in America in general, that Francisco Salazar would be the, uh, sent to the kangaroo court of U.S. justice. Uh, even though clearly one person probably couldn't kill 57 people in one No, night. no, no, and I think you, you, it, it, it sort of elevates Savage Land into a kind of more cerebral area, even though the action and the fear is very much traditional horror stuff, but having that backdrop of the idea of uh, an easy target, an e uh, you know, a very racist undertone to the accusation, not, not proof, but just simply, he must have done it, he's an illegal immigrant. Was 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 a comment on America as much as it was <clears throat> a horror film that that, that that something horrible had happened in, wasn't it? It was there was something yeah. else to think about there other than just simply who done it. <laughs> yes, no. It, 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 in fact, I'm I'm kind of reminded about that old Woody Allen joke uh, where he's he's sat in a there used to be a cartoon that he did. He was sat in in a circus with Annie <coughs> Hall, and they were looking at a clown car. And like twenty-seven clowns get out of the car, and Annie Hall says, "I always wondered how they did that." And the Woody Allen character in the cartoon says, "I always wondered why." And for for us, we wanted to we wanted the audience to wonder wh why uh, things happened. Now, of course, what we ha actually have is a um, uh, a supernatural situation where the town is killed by whatever means. I, I'm not going to spoil it and give that away. No, no, no. And, and maybe even our own movie doesn't do that, which I also like. It's kind of perverse. But what it meant was that we can constellate a series of almost like Rashomon subjective readings of what happened that night. Because the only evidence that came out of the town that night, whether it be the, 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 the manufactured or was it, uh, police reports, the uh, investigative reports by various other uh, characters. There's an investigative reporter called Lawrence Ross, who's actually a screenwriter and poker buddy of ours, but is a, a, a novelist as well as a screenwriter in his own right, and he played his own character in, in, in the film. There's a uh, Latino border guard, retired, who has a different take on things, and all these various different kind of views of what happened where there is no history of that terrible massacre come together. And the only history, as it turns out, is that Francisco Salazar, the immigrant, was an old-school photographer, and one roll of 36 images um, was eventually found that night, about probably about, about a third of the way into the movie. Uh, once the, the, the machinery of justice or injustice is 
in, in, in motion, uh, the uh, film is revealed, and that is 36 images of what actually happened that night in the town, and that's the more overtly horror aspect of the story. And that's, a, I mean, it's a really effective way you've done that as well, because of, because the images themselves are quite obscured, so we're not we're not getting spoon fed anything, but what we are getting is a reminder every time we see one. As I, I mean, it's a while since I've seen the film, but. I remember it. You know, every time we see one of the images, we're reminded we're watching a horror film. Because, because for a for a for for for, um, for for large tracks of it, you're kind of you're just listening to the you're, you're watching a story unfold that feels very real. Even though obviously the the, re the explanation we keep coming to is extraordinary, isn't it? Or the thoughts that you're being asked to consider about what could possibly have done it is extraordinary. Even though, and it's all presented in a very very clean way that feels very much like. You've just you've just switched over and you've got Discovery Channel on or something, you know. You, you know, and that's not that isn't to, that isn't to suggest that it's not cinematic. But what I mean is, it the artifice that you use to make the film works is really strong. Well, that, that, that's a really good question, Stu, because um, it was something when when you're working on a film over three years on limited resources, you you worry because like one of the things we learned at UCLA as screenwriters, but all all filmmakers deal with is the issue of tone. And we were terrified uh, that uh, because it was such a strange concept for a movie that that we would get the tone right, especially as a small budget thing. And um, you know, I'm not patting ourselves on the back in that sense, but actually, the the more we worked on it, the less that became a fear because, like, drop. You know, we we did have the best of both worlds in a way. We so one of the influences were uh, for us as filmmakers was the. Um, the, the Joe Berlinger films uh, about the history of the Memphis, uh, the West Memphis Three, uh, and his uh, Paralyze, Paradise Lost trilogy, which was to do with um, a real event, uh, wherein uh, you know uh, one heavy metaler and and two local boys were kind of press ganged into uh, uh, being convicted for the murders of some young children, and there were clearly some faults in the testimony and, and Berlinger's films and, and the, the later Peter Jackson produced film was very much about the kind of the fissures between reality and what people wanted to see and, and that became a style guide for us if you like in terms of uh, making our own docudrama wherein an illegal immigrant was basically kind of railroaded into accepting the, uh, uh, the charge for a whole city uh, or, or rather village disappearing. Okay. Yeah. No. No. I remember. I remember the. I remember the movie. It was. Uh, it's fairly. It's fairly harrowing. One. And. And I think that, as you've already suggested yourself, that your, your film. Your film isn't. Isn't. Is conclusive if you want it to be, and it's also not if you don't want it to be. I think the the Western Memphis story finishes, not as conclusive as you'd like, even though you've you've kind of grown. An attachment to these people, and you believe you you believe certainly a lot of the time. If I remember, I'm, I'm trying to remember the film now. You kind of remember, you, you kind of feel there's an innocence there and a big setup, but actually, you're left still left with some doubt. You're not you're not absolutely sure. Well, the the interesting thing about the summation of our movie, and again, not getting into spoiler territories, but what we wanted to do was we didn't because we have the the 36 images interspersed throughout the movie, which clearly show some kind of supernatural activity and bouncing that off a number of different uh, prejudices be, be they liberal or republican or out and out racist or whatever um, our, our feeling was that the only anchor to what was happening 
were the photographs, and everything else was interpretation on the part of the characters. Now, clearly, when we present some supernatural photos, we are saying that this is a horror film, and uh, one of the characters actually voices that in that, you know, something happened that night. Something terrible happened in the town of Sangre de Cristo, uh, but we do leave it open to audience interpretation about what that might be. Now, I have to ask you, as three graduates of a prestigious screenwriting course, why did yeah. you not write a script? That's the big question, and uh, it, it may sound like I'm um, making excuses, but I'm actually glad that we didn't. Maybe we were <laughs> <laughs> Maybe three and a half years later, we should have written a script to begin with. But there's a very, very clear reason, Stuart, why we didn't. I mean, I'm, we, guessing, I'm guessing you worked off at least a, a sort of outline of some description. You weren't, oh, you, absolutely. Our first six weeks of development was was an outline and a treatment. So we had a beat outline of, of, of the major broad beats of the, the film. But what we wanted to do, which is crazy, because, you know, one, you never have three directors, and we had three directors. Yeah. Two, you never use your own money, and we used our own money. And three, you never start out with a script. And we started out with a treatment instead of a script. But the important factor, because the first two is bullshit, you know, use, you know, three directors work together as good as two, and Phil, David, and I work together extremely well. We only had one really big argument, and we sorted that out, and that's fine. Who had the uh, chicken? Well, you know, <laughs> you, you, you put three awesome well wannabes in the room, and somebody's <laughs> But we also have a very tyrannical two-third majority thing. So at the end of the day, you know, two people can gang upon the other one, and we did that quite frequently. And honestly, it made a better film. And how, you know, good, how did how in that sense then working off a sort of treatment? I guess was getting more and more developed. What what were the kind of the hardest challenges for you in terms of to resolve in terms of a story you were trying to tell? Plus, <laughs> plus you've got three heads trying to work it out at the same time. Well, because we're all three screenwriters, the idea, there was no such thing as a bad suggestion, so the story just kept getting better and better. I, I honestly feel that it became more complex, and the film only, so, you know, here's an interesting thing. I was, I was, I was an art curator before, in England uh, for many years before I moved over to America, and I, I'm very familiar with the idea of process in art. And whereas I wouldn't claim that our film is art, uh, I would say that process was incredibly essential to the core of the movie because we, the film that we started out with in the treatment changed radically over the next three years and because we weren't filming for you know what's normal with film you know you write your script and you get it out and you have a budget and you better get every page done that day over a six-week period or an eight-week period we didn't film like that we filmed over two and a half years at weekends yeah. So we were in, so as, as as incredibly bad as that was on our respective wives and families. Uh, what that meant was that we could literally organically grow the project as we went. Mm. Uh, for instance, um, two years into the project, two of the major characters were not even there, uh, and then we realised that we needed another kind of narrative fulcrum uh, in certain elements. So so we introduced them. So. To recap, for the sake of clarity in our process, we started out with six weeks of development and then started shooting immediately. You know, wow. we started, wow. started shooting the key scenes and uh, uh, then took it from there. Now, the other aspect about the script is that, because um, I want to come back to that third point about the script, is that um, 
what we did is, you're absolutely right, Stuart, we had a treatment, uh, and then we started shooting, and because of, of our resources, we were working with a bunch of uh, actors and non-actors, uh, we decided we'd actually shoot it like a documentary, uh, that we would shoot two or three hundred hours of footage, and then try and carve the story out of the material that we shot. I mean, it's insane. I know it's insane. It's absolutely the wrong way to do anything. And our wonderful first editor, Matt Smith, uh, got so far and then said, like, I'm handing it over to somebody else, which wasn't anything to do with his capabilities. It was to do with the fact he'd taken this, like, he'd taken this ginormous dump of material and trying to carve it out in terms of the treatment, and just 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 for this, just for give us a figure. What what so, how many hours of footage did did your editor have to deal with then? Um, probably, probably about a hundred hours. I mean, a lot. Yeah, I mean, we really did a lot. And then what what happened was so really the editing and and the storytelling uh, was a two part process. We got to Matt did an amazing job of carving out you know, uh, uh, a certain kind of story. And then we went, after two years, again, insane, and we completely ripped it apart again and uh, uh, went to a new editor. But only after Phil David and I had huddled with the first cut, which was very long. It was mm -hmm. like nearly two hours. And um, we huddled with that first cut and worked out two things. What was essential in that first cut and what other narrative uh, thread we needed to make the story better and more compulsive. So we then went off of that and came up with a new treatment, keeping in maybe 30% of the original material, and then shot a whole other load of stuff. Having said that, this time, the second kind of phase material that we shot was uh, in the knowledge that we can't spend years making a film, and we needed to use those kind of narrative links and be very clear. So this time rather than working with actors where we would say, look, these are your beats as your character. We don't want to give you lines. We want you to be that character and work it out and extemporize in your own way, which they did, and have the editor carve the material out. Yeah. Then we went back through with a very efficient blue line kind of editorial policy, worked out what we wanted. And then when we went back to refilm some of those actors, we gave them... At, at this point, it was actually a, a, a pretty structured script, we knew the story exactly that we wanted to tell, even if new characters were added. And we would give them actual script lines rather than have them go through things. So uh, hopefully it's seamless, Stuart, but it, it was no, a no, very... From a, from a viewing point of view, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that you were doing a kind of psychedelic version of Boiled, but, um, <laughs> in, in a sense. But, you know, and, and usually I like to ask people about pre-production, but given that you went six weeks and then off you went... Um, what was it? I mean, I guess pre-production and production were almost like walking hand in hand. You, I guess, you were having you're having a pre-production meeting about something and then producing it. Almost, it was like you. That's how the, the the thing grew. And obviously, like you say, the more confident you got about the story you were telling or the story you discovered, it became more, I guess, pragmatic. I guess what you were doing. But was there any kind of particular? And I'm thinking more within your kind of the, the budgetary sort of restraints and stuff. You know, like where you have idea A. Budget B equals output C. You know, was there anything like that that you had to overcome, no. or, or any any creative things you did to get past that? 
No, I, I understand your question because that would make sense in, in, in the normal world. And, uh, you know, uh, but we, we didn't do that. I mean, let, let me give you another example about how we started out with we, we never balanced anything against a budget. It was going to be like a piece of string, it was as long as it took. Um, what we did balance was the fact that we couldn't keep rewriting and coming up with new plot lines forever. And so by, by year two, we actually went from being like, let's just. <clears throat> oh, and do this, to, oh, we have a very clear idea now about what we want to achieve. Okay. Um, but, e but even at the start, I mean, the normal dynamic for an indie movie is that you have three or five characters in one location. And as, as you know, having seen the film, uh, it, it, it's quite broad. Uh, I mean, we ended up with like, hundred I think, 102 actors and we filmed in 17 locations. Fools! Uh, fools! I know, I know, but wonderful Infernal Fools uh, because, you know, any, we, we, we had our geographical remit worked out and we were shooting without permits. I hope nobody comes, listens to Britflix and then comes back to me on this, but uh, we were filming without permits. Uh, so we were guerrilla shooting on weekends. So, you know, even... So that gives you a lot of flexibility. So if you need a particular scene and you don't have the money for it, for instance, there are a lot of court scenes in the movie because it is a docudrama and, and, and Salazar's court case is a central component of that. Yeah. We work with a great uh, uh, editorial uh, cartoonist called Andrew Mitchell who did some editorial cartoons for us that were worth probably about three minutes of, of, of filmmaking you can do in one editorial cartoon. So there are definite areas where we kind of stitched together what we wanted to do. I mean, I'm also a, a graphic artist as well in my spare time, so I also did some editorial cartoons. So, for instance, oh, I can't tell you what that cartoon is because that would be a spoiler. But there were other, there were other basically the cartoons that we did often filled in for locations that we couldn't afford, seeing as we never... Uh, okay, okay. To begin with. So, you know, I hope that... You know, what we had to do as filmmakers was balance inventiveness and papering over those cracks with wondering whether it actually worked. Well, I think, and I think, I think whether, it was, whether it was by design or by the evolution of the film, I think the choice of doing docudrama over traditional found footage... Was was a very clever move because it, you you weren't you weren't giving us you know head headache inducing you know lost images that have been uncovered and were were going to eke out the truth. Whereas it was it was about you know it it was it was about hearing people speak to camera in a way that we're familiar with, but it but it helped to build a film. Well, I, I think you're right, but here's also our other like you know hopefully inspired thought was that the photos, you know, clearly we're working on a docudrama vehicle and, and you're absolutely right. That would give us that flexibility, but also we're making a horror film. Mm. And that was, I mean, that was the original impetus. So, you know, let, let's call docudrama the, the, the vehicle to deliver, but at the end of the day, you have to deliver the horror. And, um, you know, so I want to talk a little bit about the photos maybe because, um, Okay. You, you, I mean, as much as you can. I mean, it's, I, I don't want to. I don't want to delve too much for fear of giving anything away. But you talk as as much as well, you need let, to. Let me just say that the um, the, the photos show 
as Francisco's uh, Francisco Salazar's testament to what did happen that night. Yeah. And they do show something passing through the town that night. And, you know, 36 single frames of the horror that passed through. So uh, our next thing was like, okay, we're making a horror film. It's like, how do we make these horrible? And honestly, the, the conceptual part of the photographs was, was, was the easiest because we feel that all three of us felt that a photo is actually more scary than maybe moving images these days. I mean, you know, I was around at somebody's house a while ago. I was watching The Walking Dead uh, with a bunch of people, and the 12-year-old, the 12-year-old is on the sofa watching disembodied CGI latex work zombies. And at, at, at that stage for any audience now, this is what fascinates me about horror as a horror filmmaker, how do you reintroduce a sense of creepiness and, and, and outright just just scariness in, into what has become a devalued uh, uh, kind of image bank through so much exposure. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, our thing was to actually go old school and return it to photos. A, because that's what we could afford in terms of our production values. I will make no bones about that. But B, because we actually felt it was scarier. You know, if you look at the old pictures of uh, Bigfoot or Sasquatch, uh, you know, it's like the Zapruder video of, of, of horror movies, and it's been analyzed and analyzed, and we wanted people to look at these photographs and analyze them. Um, I think, you know, I think that's, that's an interesting point, though, about, about the way that horror works and the way that our minds work, because we've been, we're that used to now, you know, we don't, we don't even found footage anymore, is it? It's just some commuter has filmed this incident. So if there's a, I mean, there was, there was footage the other day in London of um, a bus whose roof had come off because it hit a tree. Now, that was already with ITN News within about half a minute because there was a punter there, obviously with a phone, who could film it and be giving them the footage within, you know, within two seconds. And it's, it's, and we're used to that. So, therefore, an image that doesn't move has got, like, an, an, an ethereal quality, which, which moving images don't because you're looking at it, you're going, what am I seeing? Especially if it's not specific and it's not def defined and we're going, well, what is it? Is that just a blurred man? Is that is that a beast? Is that a monster? Is that a whatever? And you're you're left with all those thoughts because because the image doesn't move, you're filling in the blanks. And obviously the great thing of the great thing about horror and people like um MR James when they were they were doing their ghost stories was it wasn't about describing what the monster was. It was about describing the, the the sense of horror by the person who was being engulfed by the thing in the darkness that you can't see. So the more it's about us trying to work it out as the audience, the more scary it becomes because that's leaving us on thin ice, isn't it, as an audience, I think. What, what lives in your imagination is the most important thing. And, and appropriately enough, seeing as we just came back from the Nevermore Film Festival yesterday, which was kind of an homage you know, to Poe, is that... Um, there's a lot of talk and a good feedback about the photos. Uh, what we found from the festival audiences that have seen it so far is that they're blown away, which, you know, uh, candidly, when we started making the, the, the film, we were worried that photos would be enough to carry the, the narrative because, you know, there's a lot of really shitty horror films out that will still get a scare out of people in a black box by having a hand come out and dun-dun-dun yeah. music. You know, and we 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 never had a dun dun dun. There isn't a dun dun dun. <laughs> I can't believe no, no, I mean, no, no. I, can, I mean, I can take this. <laughs> I mean, I remember what, when I was watching it. There is there the, the, there is an, a, 
an ever increasing sense of dread because yes you're, because you're balancing it with the the growing sense of injustice you may or may not feel towards what's going on and what are the clues you're giving us or not or what red herrings you're giving us or whatever it might be that's going on with the story that's confusing us and we're, and we're having to think about two things which is this poor bugger who's who's up for mass murder and the 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 realization that something else might have happened and that's quite a classic that's a that was a neat thing about the movie that i enjoyed thank you yeah i mean um i as as a side note one of my old jobs was um watching uh, films for netflix in america that's one one of my many bespoke day jobs as a filmmaker as an indie filmmaker and so i was the horror guy so i've watched 10 20 horror films a week, every week for four years. I, I don't work for Netflix anymore, but um, and what what you get a sense of is that anybody can make a uh, a cheap horror movie, and they should pat themselves on the back for making any any filmmaker that makes a movie should pat themselves on the back. But we didn't want to pat ourselves on the back for making a horror movie that was just a horror movie. We wanted to make a horror movie, and and that's the difference. And you know, um, if you don't already subscribe to Britflix. Just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. What have you learned making this film? And I'm guessing there's a lot, so maybe maybe you want to sort of focus on two or three key points about making a, making a horror film on a low budget and generally making a feature film. Okay, so... Thinking of three things that you asked, Stuart, um, what do we know for the future? I, I mean, I think we're infused by the fact that this little piece of kind of uh, string and ceiling wax kind of uh, flibbity gibbet structure that we've made, and we're just content at one point just to make, has, has got such a good reaction from people. So um, that's the first thing. And, and that's what every indie filmmaker needs as a goal it's like you know uh there are audiences who will appreciate your work if you make it um the second thing is we probably won't use our own money again and we'll probably not film in this dynamic again not because it's not great but because it takes a long time i mean i think you know phil david and i have a shingle it's called the massive phil company and we are developing funnily enough various other treatments of projects on that border uh, right. because it's a very rich area for like other uh, exploitation like whatever passed through the town that night where did it come from and why uh, which means that we can also deliver not even sequels or prequels but what we would call parallels uh, so we're developing that we're also developing our own projects as both screenwriters and filmmakers uh, still under the same shingle um, so definitely once you've made a film keep the company that has set it up that you've established and then see if that's going to be flexible to give you other options uh, and third is we would probably shoot a film now within an actual filming schedule uh, I don't think our wives would let us <laughs> do this again and I presume when you say film when you say schedule that also means with a budget that you try to keep within Yes, yeah, and hopefully, you know, we're no different than any other uh, uh, indie company. Uh, we hope this will be a calling card for uh, fundraising, which is something that we've never looked at. I, I think it's important to bear in mind that um, 
both in terms of funding and distribution. Um, you know, it's kind of a left brain, right brain thing with filmmakers. Filmmakers just like to make the bloody film, you know, and um, all that other stuff is is difficult. And as you know yourself as a filmmaker, Stuart, you have to like get into the muck and maybe spend, you know, so the question one has to ask oneself, is it better to spend a year with the treatment and um, going out and seeing people and raising some money so you can shoot a film in like six or eight weeks and it probably is, or is it worth going by yourself and spending another three years on the same project? And honestly, we've done it once, and um, you know, I think we're in favour of the more conventional route from now on. Well, also, the conventional route allows you the breathing space to to use that three years to develop more than one project, doesn't it? And also, then then when one project ca attracts the finance or the right cast or whatever it might be, you move with that momentum, don't you? Whereas I think once you, you you had to finish this project, didn't you? There was like you'd committed to it, so therefore you you were all, for better or for worse, wedded to it, weren't you, as well? Which is not to say that all those kind of other projects you developed you wouldn't be, but obviously once you start shooting, there's an intent there, isn't there, that's, that, that's gone beyond simply, can we make this movie? Especially after you're six months in and you suddenly realise that you're making something that is viable, but it's going to take maybe more than you thought originally as a, as, as a rather naive filmmaker. I mean, it's what I would call a ham and egg situation. You know, the pigs are committed and the chickens are still thinking about it. And we had to be the pigs. We had, we had to push through to the end. Um, I've never heard that expression, but, but I like it. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I didn't just make it up. It, it, it is actually real. But... <laughs> I, trust, I trust you. I trust you. Um, now, one of, the things that, one of the things I liked about the movie a lot was with, with there being that... that, that comment about the, the uh, inherent racism that exists on those border towns and it's almost like anything bad that happens whether it be you know a chicken goes missing or somebody's car gets scratched then clearly it'd obviously be a Mexican that did it and and everybody would agree without any proof or whatever it just is they're the bad people but I think right. in, in your film you didn't you didn't just allow yourself to be indulged in that sort of left left leaning finger wagging aren't these racists bad because I think you also lampooned the liberals as much as you did the conservatives in, in, in some of the characters you had. Which I can honestly testify was, was the best part of this extended, extenuated process because that wasn't necessarily in the original first six-week development period. It was only through that period of beginning to interview people, uh, you know, supporting characters and look at that, and then we realised you know, a year in, 18 months in, that we needed to redress it. And honestly, it, it, it sounds like a bit of a claim, but the film became more sophisticated because we had that time to literally build in new characters. Uh, because we did find ourselves cleaving to that kind of liberal progressive bias, which, you know, I don't want to speak for Phil and David, but I think it would be fair to say that as, you know, Southern California creators, we probably all cleave to that. Yeah. Um, so um, once we started to really interrogate the project, it, it became a bit better. And we actually wrote characters in a number of different ways to kind of counterbalance that. Um, you know, originally the Lawrence Ross investigative, investigative uh, character was... Uh, had a very through clear line through the scripts in terms of his arc about his investigation as the hero. Yeah. And as, as you're hinting at, I don't want to give anything away then. Um, 
that becomes a bit kind of more obfuscated towards the end. Um, we also wrote in a border card, a border guard character, Carlos Olivares, because we felt here's an interesting thing that we interrogated ourselves a year into as you know bleeding heart liberal progressives was that because Salazar was kind of the the uh, you know the the easy target for the racial uh, authorities, we realized we didn't have a an active Latino character. You know, okay. it was all like, woe is me, you know, my brother's going to die or be executed for these murders and people talking about injustice. And so Phil came up with the idea of uh, a much more um, active uh, character that was going to be another separate subjective narrator through events, you know, because, you know, we're three white filmmakers. And so we became aware of our own shortcomings in relation to it's that. It's interesting that you spotted that because I don't know if you read the recent criticism of Boyle, certainly in IndieWire. Um, about the lack of positive Latino characters, given where the film was set, geographically speaking. No, I, I haven't read that, but I'm not surprised. And that's no reflection on Richard Linklater. No, no, exactly. No, I mean, the critic went over the top, but it was in, it, it, it's nevertheless an interesting point. Um, and I mean, it, it, it got a bit carried away with itself by referring to Birth of a Nation and stuff. It's like, Richard Linklater's a lot of things, but he ain't, he ain't trying to support white <laughs> power, is he? Let's be a, it's, it's a ridiculous concept. No, exactly. No, and it was. It was. You, you know, the point was fair. Was fair, but it was. It, it, then they took they took their logic and then exaggerated it as if to say Linklater was a bad person. And I, I'm oh, silly, but it's. In, but nevertheless, it's interesting that you between the three of you, you you saw this shortcoming in your movie, and because of the way you were making the film, you were able to then engineer a way to correct it and and make. And make the film fuller. fuller well, that, 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 that was uh, that was something that was very, um, um, yeah, I would say, satisfying to us because we, we we felt that you know even though our we had this kind of weird production method, what it meant was that we were literally like making work and editing it. It just in in reality. So instead of writing a script where you go, oh well, this character we might need this or that. We would actually shoot everything and then, like, chuck a whole load of stuff out and, you know, get smart about what we needed and then reshoot it on a weekend. So, you know, uh, it, it did give us some kind of um, buffer against being naive as filmmakers. So I, I wouldn't recommend it as a, as a working methodology to anybody else, but it <laughs> certainly made our, our film better. And I, I'll give you another couple of examples, seeing as we're digressing on this, Stuart, is that um, one of the other things we wanted to do. This is just an anecdote that you might find useful, you know. No, and, no, please, and, no, go on, go on, go on. Don't let me stop you. Funny, which is that in my spare time, I'm a bit of a comic book geek, and um, so we're shooting uh, uh, a series of shots with uh, a wonderful actor called Ed Green, uh, who plays the shock jock, uh, the racist mouthpiece of, of of the film. And in between takes, we're talking away. <laughs> started geeking out about various comics and stuff and realized that we were fellow sad people. And um, it turns out that Ed is best friends with Len Wein, whom you listeners might not know, uh, but if they're geeks, they'll know he was the creator of Swamp Thing, Wolverine, and the, uh, the new X-Men. And so he mentioned that Len Wein, in his spare time, wanted to be an amateur actor. And um, I said, hell, we should talk to him. So... <laughs> So again, two years in, 
you know, Phil, David, and I were uh, brainstorming like because you know, uh, you know, we weren't going to ex exactly accept Len Wein as an amateur actor into our film just because he was that, but but also, you know, um, as a geek, it would be nice to get him in, and I, I'll be candid that that's not a bad marketing aspect to it. As it turned out, before I get to the end of the story, we were right, because Len Wein just honed it. He, he's one of the best actors in the movie. He sells things so well, it's incredible. I could not be, you know, for, forget the, the, you know, the, the uh, comic celebrity aspects. He's, he's a brilliant actor in it, and I thank him that he did it for us. But at, at the same time, what we thought was like, what are we missing as a character at the moment where we can fit in as, uh, you know, a late 60s, early 70s, guy that likes to wear blue denim and has a big beard and we thought why don't we create a Vietnam veteran photographer who analyzes Francisco's photographs to sell them to the audience because we needed to sell them to the audience uh, yeah. I mean what, what we found since then is people respond so well to the images by themselves that it probably wasn't uh, uh, something we needed to worry about but this is like going that extra like level to, to, to create the meta world of this universe where these photos exist. Um, and so we brought him in. And, um, you know, that was another aspect where, you know, maybe even of a, at a subliminal level, audiences, because they have a uh, inverted comma, um, you know, authority on photography telling them that it's real might give them that one extra degree that will make them help them accept it. Now, um, it's... Safe to say, for me, for me watching the film, and I think this is the this is the real victory for the movie, is that when I finished watching it, um, uh, despite obviously being nervous when because we'd got friends before I'd seen the movie, so you're always there's always that will I like the movie, um, yeah. and it was the fact that I felt like I'd watched a real a real documentary. I I believed at the end of it, I'd been through the motions like I had when I watched West of Memphis. You know, it's like that. And that's that's a real. I thought that. I think that's the bit where you, you know anybody that sees it will really be impressed with what you've pulled off. Is the sense that it feel it all holds together and it feels very real. You know the town, the people commentating, all that mix of people. You you said what seventeen different speaking parts and oh well, hundred and two, hundred and two, sorry, two locations and 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 I guess that kind of. Put, and, and you use beautiful graphics and stuff, so it really, it really feels authentic. You know, in, in the same way, I was. I mean, I, I, weirdly, I was watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre with somebody who had never seen it. I believe that's your favourite film, Stuart, as well. It, it you, is. It is. Got, well, if, you you Texas get, Chainsaw Massacre reference in yet again. Well, the thing is, though, it's it's the, the, watching it with somebody for the first time reminded me of its power because when that first bit of text rolls up and the voice says. The, what, what would happen to those people? And he turns to me and he says, "Is this a true story?" And I'm like, "I'm not telling you that." And I just thought it was brilliant <laughs> that the film, just by having an authoritative voice, you know, and be, and he wasn't, he'd not seen it, he had no expectations, not read about it, he isn't a horror fan or anything, you know. And in the same way, you know, I knew nothing about the idea that this was a fictional town. For all I knew, that this was real, and you know, the people talking all looked real and it all felt very natural, but it did flow like a story. You know, you know, Cannibal Holocaust is another good one where, you know, the idea of fact and fiction have melded together to create a story. And I, and I, and I just think that's one of the, for me, you know, for me watching it, that's what really was the big payoff. Plus, you constantly kept reminding us it was a horror film. It wasn't just an exercise in 
unpicking the story of a mass murder. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad it works on that level for you. And, and here's the problem that we have as, as filmmakers in maybe marketing this. I mean, even talking with you today, Stu, it's, it's kind of like a meta question for us because what we found is that, honestly, audiences are Googling it to see what really happened. And that's Brilliant. Prob probably the highest praise that we can get from that. A lot of people are coming to our website and, and, and saying, Does this, was this real? Or people come up to us festivals afterwards and go, but I never heard about this. And honestly, that's, you know, that, that's good praise for us. But the other thing is maybe to get a bit meta on meta, it's very hard to talk about this film. Phil and David and I have had like intensive sessions about how we should respond to any kind of uh, marketing or media for it, which includes talking to you now. And we basically decided that we have to... The, cop to the fact that it's a fiction uh, because we don't want to be one of those I'm sorry uh, uh, wanky douchebags that pretends with an eyebrow raise that it's all real because it's clearly not because it's based upon a supernatural event but when, when one talks about it at festivals or with you it, it's difficult to try and find that line because the film takes a line between fiction and you know verisimilitude but that's what, I'm, that's what I'm saying, though. I watched it full in the knowledge. It wasn't a documentary. But when I finished, I still felt like I'd watched one. That's what I'm saying. It's kind of like, I think I think you're right. I don't think you should try and sell this as like the Blair Witch Project or something, that, that you know, oh, did this really happen? And making up, making up, you know, pretend news clippings that appear on Twitter and people go, ooh, what's this all about? I think that 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 would sort of you'd be misselling it in a way. I think I think this film is 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 you, know, you can go and see this film. You're not going to see a film like it at the moment. So in that sense, it's a different experience. And for that, that's what makes I think that's what gives it its, its edge. Um, but you, I can see your problem. Um, and this this is an this this leads us into you know trying to on the one hand, it took you three years to make the movie, and then then the real work started, didn't it? Really, which is trying to get a an audience and b someone to sell the film and if and if you as filmmakers are kind of stuck between two at least two big places which is how do we you know do we sell this as a real story do we sell this as a fiction thing then i imagine trying to talk to people whose job it is to short circuit selling movies becomes a very difficult one um so um so what's what where's where's the um, and we and we and asked at the start about release date we don't you don't have one yet so where yeah. what where in the process are you in terms of trying to get get this out to to people? Because obviously you're you're using the 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 the, uh, the sort of method that the, the going to festivals as a way of garnering yeah. an audience, and obviously getting yeah. things like best picture isn't going to do you any harm, is it? No, best director at New Orleans Horror Film Festival, of course, yeah, premiered at Comic Con, and, and um, now best feature at Nevermore does not. Um, hurt our cause whatsoever and is actually like uh, uh, I mean fantastic I mean yes we are on the festival treadmill now um, and one of the things that you'll know after uh, attending that with your own screenwriting nomination uh, Stuart is that um, there are a lot of people that you meet again and again over a period of time because we're all on that treadmill yeah we're beginning good advice from Alex Drummond who was the guy that won the best feature at Nevermore last year for his amazing film The Shower and uh, we keep going head-to-head -head with uh, two of the nicest people in the universe, Eddie Gazalian and Madeline Paxson from Blood Punch, which, you know, you need to give a shout-out to because that's another amazing uh, 
horror film. And so, yeah, we're going we're going through that whole uh, a, a treadmill. We're actually getting to a point now where um, we're talking to distributors. Uh, we don't want it to derail our festival uh, program. But here's the thing: for every indie, indie filmmaker out there, distributors do not pay for festival awareness. They do not pay for um, posters or um, trailers. You have to pay for that yourself, basically. So if a distributor takes your film, they are happy for you to spend 17 hours on a flight coming home from Durham, North Carolina, uh, promoting a film that they will benefit from, but they will not pay from that. So there, there is a huge schism. This this is the graph that you want to know about, Stuart. In the, this is in the, it. I, I didn't know this. This is, it. this is interesting. There, there is a huge schism between what a distributor will pay for. because uh, I mean, I don't want to generalize, but you know, distributors will re release a film but won't necessarily pay for certain promotional aspects of that. So even if you get a distribution deal, it's still incumbent upon the filmmaker now in 2015. Maybe not in 2010 or 2000 or whatever, but now you cannot, as an indie filmmaker, turn your film over to a distributor and expect them to get it into, I don't know, can or whatever the fuck. You know, uh, I, I mean, basically, turning a film over to a distributor is only the beginning of your journey. Uh, so you need your Twitter account, you need your Facebook account, you need to get bums on seats. If you have a celebrity friend, let them put a t-shirt on with your website when they're being interviewed on something. Whatever it is, you, you need to do that because we actually had a meeting with a distributor a, a few weeks ago who said uh, there is too much content. And that's incredible in a world in which we were told that, you know, um, all these new platforms would mean that content would just flow like salmon into a stream and, you know, and find their spawning grounds. There's actually too much content. There are too many indie filmmakers with cameras and Final Edit Pro. And so the market is glutted. And that's, that's, a, that's a, not a terrible thing, but an interesting thing for filmmakers to realize. So if you find a distributor that releases 40 movies a month and is happy for some to disappear... You know, uh, do you go with them, or do you find another distributor? And, and I say that as, as as one of the triumvirate, Phil, David, and I, who were just literally in the hinterlands of learning what this. Might... I mean, to be to be honest with you, it doesn't. It, it, it sounds harsh, but it doesn't sound too dissimilar. I mean, that, my 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 experience is more in in of this kind of world, of this kind of mark. Sorry, selling of products is more based in music, and you know, a lot of what happens at record labels, whether they be major or sort of bigger indies, is about backing all the horses. And then if one wins, the win is so good, the rest falling over before it reaches the finishing line doesn't actually matter. And and that's where I think, you know, and that's where I can imagine those... It, it, it's almost like, yeah, it, on the one hand, the distributor is saying there's too much content. On the other hand, they're, go, they're, they're kind of... I'm guessing they can pick up content a lot cheaper with a, with a, with a sense of the... The reward for anything that get that gets some traction is is going to be bigger, isn't it? I suppose. Well, I, I kind of personally see it as like a um, kind of a Moroccan souk, where you wander around these alleyways and there are like you know twenty thousand. Oh, that's an exaggeration. Like say two hundred stores 
uh, all selling the same kind of uh, designed rug, but telling you that they'll give you a different kind of rug. And, you know, that's, that's what the filmmaker's relationship with is with the distributor, but that's also the distributor's relationship with markets. I mean, it, it's a salesman's game, and some of that depends upon the, the integrity or quality or creativity of your film, and some of it doesn't. I mean, let's not even get started into how one controls a one-sheet poster or a trailer, you know? It's, it's, it, and what I found talking to other indie filmmakers is there is no easy way to get to this part of the process. It's not easy for anybody. And so if you look for like 20 options rather than 10, that doesn't make it easier. That gives you 10 more options and you still don't know how it's going to turn out. So it's actually a left brain right thing for filmmakers. Well, know? no, I mean, I must admit, a couple of years ago in Cannes, I saw uh, there, was a, there was a serious conversation about how um, film festivals themselves were an alternative <laughs> distribution. Because um, obviously, you, if, if you if you take a film to festivals, you retain all the rights as the filmmaker, and then any other any yes. other ways of getting out to market, whether they be, you know, any any kind of online way of getting out to market, doesn't involve any physical cost to you. You know, it's, it's a deal struck, isn't it? And then if it, there's an audience for it, because of its what's happened at festivals, it sells, doesn't it? I suppose. Um, certainly, certainly genre's got that chance. I mean, but but the problem being with genre is that everybody with a five D camera is and a GoPro is is making a horror film. So it kind of well, it, that, that's the other interesting thing, sir, because the genre is, is is even more flooded than you know. No one's going out and making genre uh, making rom coms with it with a five DX. They're making horror movies, and it's it's something that's like really intrigued me uh, over a period of time because it's like why is horror the the default? I mean, let me move, let me push that back to you. You're you're the huge generic kind of horror fan, and you have this encyclopedic knowledge of it. Why is horror the go-to for? Let let, let me ask the interviewer a question. Why, why do you think horror is the go-to? Well, to be honest with you, I think I think that's a perception rather than a reality in some senses. Because right. through Britflix, I've I've interviewed people who are doing exactly what we're talking about, but they're not making genre. They're making drama. They're making rom coms, and uh, and and it is there is different content. It's just that I think that the thing that horror has, like like heavy metal does, is that it's easily quantifiable. And everybody thinks it's the same, but actually, when we get down to it, a good horror film, and let's th let's pick two that were popular last year, Zombievers and Babadook. <laughs> you could you, to say they're the same genre is taking the piss. You know, yet they they both will have they both played at Frightfest, you know, biggest festival in Europe, right? You know, but yet they're a million miles away as as far as films go. It'd be like you know. Be like comparing, um, I don't know, Grumbleweeds with Led Zeppelin. You know, it it, it 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 doesn't it doesn't stack up. But they that that's the world that we live in. And I think I think horror, rightly or wrongly, is is full of ambitious people who, for want of a better expression, don't know about film, but they like horror. You know, whereas there are other people who like film and see horror as a gateway to making a movie. Right. So therefore, they bring their film knowledge to the genre as opposed to an enthusiasm. So you know, you get. I mean, look, I've reviewed them. You know, you get you get a film and you can tell it's made by a fan, 
but it, it doesn't it doesn't really have anything to say beyond I like horror films. You know, and I think that's what that's what happens. Whereas I think with I know, with, but, but but then you get David Cronenberg being a jury member at Cannes, so you know it, it works out over the long run. Well, no, look, look. I mean, I mean, what is 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 a Bruno Dumont movie a horror film? Because you don't get you don't get that's never going to get a fright fest. But his films are brutal. You know, and they'll, and there'll be and there'll be there'll be there'll be a, there'll be a, there'll be a They'll be part of Critics Week and part of the Palm Door at Cannes every time that, that he makes a movie. But <clears throat> you ain't going to get a kid who likes zombies for watching a Bruno Dumont movie, you know? Yeah. Um, and it, you know, look, look. I mean, look at something like Martyrs, or or or, or even the follow up to that, which was um, the Tall Man with Jessica Biel, which was completely missold as a slasher movie. Yet it was equally as clever as Martyrs was. It had that. It, it, it had that bigger story, a bit. You know what you've done with yours. There's the bigger story. There's a, a very micro level. Your story is about a man left covered in blood, who obviously could be the killer of a load of people in a town. And your film investigates whether or not he did do it. And over the course of the movie, through the people you hear talking, that gives you a bigger picture of an America as well as the story about this poor Mexican kid. Can can I can I use that as a quote on our next film poster? Because that was more, um, that was that it, that was fantastically incisive. So thank you for You're that. Welcome. Well, no, like I say, I like the movie, so it's like it's easy for me to say it. You know, you, you, I only have a struggle when uh, when I'm talking about things that you know you're trying to you're trying to make a you know silk purse out of a sow's ear, and it's and I don't have to do that with your film. So. Um, let's get to the end of this podcast. I think we've said loads about it. Now, you, you've given us a lot here about making the movie. You've been very unorthodox. It took three years. You've got too many people involved. You used too many locations, but it still meant you had a movie that is that is garnering positive attention, and hopefully that will get to a wider only get to a wider audience over the time that it's around. And you've also given us a few lessons learned and some great anecdotes about about what's happened during the filmmaking process. So, what I like to ask people who come on um, is to recommend me some British movies that they feel may be grossly underrated or deserve more kudos. So, what films would you recommend? Now, we've, we've recommended people see Savage Land and hopefully they get a way to see it in the near future, but what right. British films do you feel are grossly underrated and deserve a bit more kudos, Sam? Well, as as a Toonami man, I'm not going to recommend Get Carter because that has too much kudos. But that's my favourite film. So what what I'm going to do, Stuart, if you don't mind, can can I do a, a three film shortlist? You can do a three film shortlist for all you want, sir. Fire away. All right. Well, my first, uh, and I will be brief uh, with these. Uh, my first shortlist is Excalibur, 1981, by John Borman. Okay. Because I feel that within the bloated uh, uh, Lord of the Rings uh, contemporary thing, I feel like a crusty old man saying that you need to go back to dropping acid and sitting on moss-covered uh, moors. And Excalibur is a, a fantastic fantasy film, which just transcends its own genre. Uh, John Borman went completely crazy with this film and uh, in an era where it's already going to be rebooted in Los Angeles um, there's talk about the next couple of years about it being rebooted as no doubt some kind of CGI uh, exacerbated uh, 
kind of audience-friendly PG-13 thing, Excalibur was the, the real deal. Uh, so that was my first one. Um, that's one. That's one of my um, one of my VHS faves. That one. And I'm just, I just look. I never, I've never really looked at the cast before. It's like who's who in it. Oh, it's incredible. John, John Terry, Nicole Williamson. It's uh, Sherry Lungy. I mean, it's all there. It's fantastic. Apart from the terrible French actor that played Lancelot, but, Gabriel yeah. Byrne, Liam Neeson. I mean, this kind of like they, they, that was their early kickstart, wasn't actually, it? Actually, Patrick Stewart. Yeah, Patrick Stewart as well. Yeah. Stuart, yeah, no, it's a it's a fantastic film. Go see it. So yeah, no, no, that's a, an old favour of mine. So go on. What's number two? Secondly, well, I wasn't quite sure of your uh, criteria because certainly Peeping Tom, nineteen sixty by Michael Powell, is now on the top hundred lists of um, movies. But I feel still the continued need to uh, salvage it when one film critic, when it was released in nineteen sixty, said. I'm going to quote, the film is more nauseating and depressing than the leper colonies of East Pakistan, the back streets of Bombay, and the gutters of Calcutta, which is not automatically uh, racist, but actually it is. So it's, it's completely colonial racist to begin with as, as a comment, but like defers to the fact that... Um, Peeping Tom by Michael Powell is a film about filmmaking. It was an incredibly brave film. It was only rescued something like 25 or 30 years later by Scorsese, and otherwise would still be in the sewer that that stupid fucking critic talked about. So, My, 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 my DVD's got the, the introduction by Scorsese on it. Oh, really? I, I, I have not seen that. But let me get to, because I know time is short, so let me get to my, my favourite uh, kind of... Uh, uh, response to your question, which is a kind of loving 1961 by John Schlesinger. I apologize to anybody listening to the podcast that might want me or any other writers or directors to select something more contemporary. And I know I'm going back into time, but I was born a year after a kind of loving. And I want to talk to about my love of film which is, I believe, that it is a time machine in which we are transported back to certain times and in a kind of loving, which is a very kind... It comes from the kitchen sink school of filmmaking. So we've got, like, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning by Carol Rice uh, in um, 62, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner by Tony Richardson in 1962, and uh, A Kind of Loving by Schlesinger in 1961 is a story of just two people who meet under the smokestacks of a, an industrial Sheffield and uh, fall in love and go through the motions about becoming man and wife. And it's incredibly profound to me because I see my father in it. My dad died uh, 10 years ago. My mum died about two years ago. And I... I some of the film is a time machine wherein we see things that we kind of vaguely remember or might not even remember at all. And uh, A Kind of Loving is, is a social realist fiction of people's lives back in a time when I was just about being born. And it, it works it for me. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful film. And the, the sadness of it is... Outside of those other films, it's it's not available on Blu-ray or DVD, but you can get it on Amazon. Oh, Check really? out. Loving. Yeah. 
Brilliant. <laughs> I mean, and what's interesting, just looking back over those movies, is that uh, certainly that one and Peeping Tom are X certificate, which is obviously sort of old money for what we now know as eighteen and. NC seventeen in America, and it's just interesting. It's just lovely seeing. It's like it's like that in of itself is a throwback. <laughs> the idea of an X certificate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I believe probably the for a kind of loving the uh, certificate it got was based about a very um, I mean demure version by contemporary aspects uh, when you can see Janet Jackson's nipple everywhere. Um, but uh, back then, there was a kind of a lovemaking scene where they first consummated the love behind a sofa, and uh, it was um, just shabby and awkward, and like everybody who ever lost their virginity. And it's it's, it's a brilliant scene, and uh, I could not recommend it more highly. Well, look, thank you very much for those recommendations, and thank you very much for coming on to talk about your film Savage Land and We at Britflix. Wish you all the best of luck, and when it's got a release, which I no doubt it will at some point, we will uh, endeavour to get one of the reviewers on it. So thank you, and good luck with it, sir. Well, on, on behalf of Phil Gidry, David Whalen, and I, we really thank you, Stu, and uh, best wishes. Thank you. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com.